As you turn to Romans chapter 3, and I hope you will, uh, take you back. You know, there are things that you want done extra well. A uh, long time ago, I was uh, working with Warren Damption. We were framing walls. And at those days, we did not have a gun to, sh- to frame with. We used these big hammers called framing hammers. And they had these ends on them called waffle uh, ends. And it, did, it just made like a waffle imprint on the wood. And he wanted me to be sure that I hit that nail hard enough that I left a waffle print with each one. That's his way of knowing that I drove that nail all the way in. And so you just smack it, and you say it's in, but I don't see a good waffle print, so you smacked it again. So it was good and in. It was solid. Uh, I think about that. I think about, um, uh, think of the grossest bug, you know, that, that bug that you particularly like the least. For many of you, this would be a spider, right? For some of you, it might be a beetle. Uh, it might be some kind of a bee or hornet that you have the opportunity to step on, right? And you step on the bug, but you're not satisfied, and so you do this, okay? Why do you do this? There's there's two reasons why you might do that. One might be that you are a tender, compassionate person, and you don't want the bug to be in pain, okay? I I heard one compassionate person... (laughs) And the other of you, why? Because you want to be sure that thing is dead. And you know what is the most unsatisfying thing is to do that and lift up your shoe and find out it was in one of those spaces and it's still alive down there. And what do you do? Do you walk away? No, no you do it again because you want that sucker dead. Right? What's that got to do with the Bible? <laughs> well, because we're still talking about how we are caught in sin. And you go, why? Has he not made his point clear? The answer is yes. He has stomped on that bug, and now he is making sure beyond all possible doubt that we have this point down, right? Uh, Because we've done that kind of thing. What we have today in Romans with the topic of sin, we've gone through chapter 1, that the world is sinful. We've gone through chapter 2, the Religious people are sinful. We've gone through the first part of chapter 3. Everybody's stuck in sin. You go, Paul, would you just leave it alone now? And he doesn't. And and I am of such a nature that if he doesn't leave it alone, I can't leave it alone. So don't blame me. Blame Paul. When you get to heaven, say, do you know how many weeks he preached on that? (laughs) And he'll say, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, It's like uh, Paul is the human author. God is the one behind every word written, and God wants to be sure we don't miss this. If by any chance you are clinging to the idea that you are not that bad, that your sin condemns you, 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 you think everyone is not trapped by sin, that you think the world is not that bad, that you think somebody somehow has an excuse uh, that, 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 that... what you're doing is you're hanging on like you're the little bug in the space, you know, in the tread of your shoe. Uh, and, and he's saying, no, I will not let you get out of this. You are, the, your, sin is, your sin is crushing, and it's inescapable. It takes the options away. So today, first what we're going to do is look at some Old Testament passages. I called it a catalog. I don't know if that's the word I want, but I couldn't think of a better word. A catalog of the sinfulness of man. And then we'll see the reminder that the law doesn't excuse. What the law ultimately does is condemn. 
So uh, we have this Old Testament catalog of sin, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. We ended with verse 9. I'm picking up with verse 9. I'm repeating the verse. It goes with both sections really well. What then? Are we better than they? Speaking to, speaking to the Jews. Uh, are we better than they? Speaking about the Gentiles. Uh, not at all if we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Right? He's saying, he's saying everybody, all together. And then he gives this list. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, in the path of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's pretty thorough, right? It was an exhaustive list. If you want to read the exhaustive list, you have to start with Genesis 1-1 and read through Malachi for whatever the last verse of Malachi is, if you want the exhaustive list of sin in the Old Testament and of how people are trapped by sin, that's what you would have to do. Uh, and, and, and as you do that, make a list of everything people do wrong. And you know, as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you actually see people do right. Uh, you see people doing the good thing. That, but what you find is, you want to know something very consistent about this, is it's the godly people who do the things right and the ungodly people who do the things wrong. And that confirms his point. Wrong is done by both people who claim God and people who don't, but only godly people are doing the right thing. So this list is, is not exhaustive, but it makes a really good summary. And, and verses 10 through 18 are completely Old Testament quotes. So, so, so I, I encourage you to keep your Bible and look at Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go back and read some passages. First, I'm going to read Psalm 14. 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 5 Verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 140, verse 3. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Psalm 10. Verse 7. Oh, there's a lot of psalms in here, yeah. He, he did a thorough job of picking through the psalms to find just the phrases he wanted. Psalm 10, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. And that's uh, Psalm 16. <laughs> Six looks like a zero to me. This is not my big print Bible. This is my little print Bible. Uh, Psalm 10, verse 6. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Oh, seven's what I want. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Isaiah, we step out of Psalms for a minute, to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. Then we'll go back to Psalms, so don't worry. 
if you were worried about something like that. Psalm 59, verses 7 through 8. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And finally, Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the ungodly in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And so as I read through these, and you're looking at Romans chapter 3, you go, yep, 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 yep. You know, it's not exact quotes. Uh, and you go, part, by the way, once upon a time I really struggled with that. I thought, what's wrong? Why isn't the Bible correct in its quotes of the Old Testament? And the answer is they were quoting a different Old Testament. Uh, they, had, they were quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament accurately, <laughs> and because that's what they had. We get to quote from the Hebrew. Uh, we, our Old Testament that we read is the Hebrew uh, translation from the Hebrew, not from the Greek, and so, so that explains that. But anyway, uh, I want you to recognize something he's doing by quoting all of these things. He is not appealing to reason anymore. He is appealing to authority. Uh, he has been reasoning with us and reasoning with us and reasoning with us, and finally he says, okay, now here's just the way it is. And he quotes verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. He says, this is God's word. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm not reasoning with you anymore. I'm simply telling you what it says. He has been reasoning. Sometimes people won't listen to reason. Sometimes people won't agree with your reason. Sometimes people will hear your reason and say, that's what you say, but what does God say? And so he says, well, here's what God says. If you won't listen to reason, here is what the authority says. And it was thinking about that that prompted me to get that image of grinding the bug, you know. Sometimes the, the, I, I, I sit down to write a sermon, and the, I've got the, the introduction down. And sometimes it's, it's, as I'm partway through it, I go, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. In this case, if, you're, if, if, if there's still some life squiggling, saying, no, no, I'm not that bad. No, no, I'm not that sinful. No, no, we're not like that. I'm, the, the point of this is to grind it out of you. He's just saying, no, 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 no. But still, as you look at that section, if you're like me, you, you, you look at it and you say, I do want it to make sense. And you look at some of these, these arguments here and you go, I'm not sure I, I, I get this. Some, some of these statements are kind of extreme. Not everyone is this bad. You can't say everyone. He says, Your throat, their throats are open graves. They're swift to shed blood, destruction and misery. And, and, and uh, you go, not everybody's doing that. And it's true. That's, that's, I'll grant you that. Some people are worse than others. And not everybody is the worst example. I don't think he's trying to say that. But you know what really struck me as I looked at this is how dangerous nice people are. How dangerous well people who are well-meaning and nice but are wrong in what they say. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. I, I have them written down so that I don't have to wing it completely. There's a phrase out there saying, we are all children of God. Basically, it says, because I am a human being and I'm made in God's image, I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. We're all children of God. And we find out that the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. What does the Bible teach? We've been looking at for, for these last several months as we go through, through these Romans passages is, is we are all alienated from God. That, that's what Scripture teaches. And so people say, no, no, we're all children of God. And the Bible says, no, no, we're all alienated from God. And we have to say which one is right. But the person who says, we're all children of God, don't they mean well? Don't they sound nice? It sounds friendly. It sounds winsome. It's, you hear it, and it warms your heart. Oh, yeah. 
That's so good. We're all children of God. Uh, the saying tells people they're okay as they are. If you tell people they're okay as they are, you're telling them you don't need to change. If you're telling them they, you don't need to change, and the fact is that they do need to change, you're preventing them from doing the very thing they're supposed to do. But you're doing it in such a nice way. Right? Surely you should get some points for that. Okay, here's another one. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. My God wouldn't send, that's the way they say it. My God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Better be fearful of who your God is. Jesus says, don't fear him who has the ability to kill the body, uh, but fear him who can, fear, can kill your soul in hell. And he wasn't talking about the devil, because the devil can't do that. He was talking about God because God's the only one who can sentence someone to hell. The, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that a day of judgment is coming. It, it's inescapable. And, 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 and telling people there is no hell is telling them they don't need to flee from the wrath to come. Yeah, I love, that's, a, that's, that's not a Jesus statement, flee from the wrath to come. It's a John the Baptist statement, it's a wrath to come. And I love the story about it because he's down there at the, at, at, at the Jordan River and he's baptizing people and they're coming along and he's baptizing them and he's, you're a bad sinner, come on in. And he sees the Pharisees coming and he goes, who warned you to flee the judgment to come? It's like, I don't want to baptize you, I want you to be punished, Right? Uh, it's, he didn't exactly say that, but that's what I hear when I hear, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And what's he says, the wrath is coming. The wrath is coming. You need to be warned, and people need to be warned that the wrath is coming. And when someone says, no, no, God wouldn't send anyone to hell, they have no reason to change their lives. They have no need to, to, to change what they're doing. They have no need to repent. They have no need to seek Christ because nobody's going to hell, and, and it's just fine. And, and, and you can say, well... Uh, even if I simply cease to exist, at least I'll be over and I won't be suffering. But that's not what Scripture teaches. And to tell somebody, it sounds so nice, doesn't it? It sounds so good. It sounds noble. My God would not do that. Like, ooh, I like your God. I want that one. But that God is not the real God. And the only God who has the power to do anything is the real God. Uh, he's the one that matters. And, and it's so dangerous to tell people that, that there is no hell. You don't have to be afraid of it. I like, another one I like, there's no such thing as a bad boy. I always picture Bing Crosby in some movie where, <laughs> where he said, said that line, there's no such thing as a bad boy. Uh, what does that say? It says it's all society's fault and we can't be blamed for what we do. And, and I'm not going to say it's not society's fault to a certain extent. But, but that doesn't, you know, sin, sin sometimes explains, you know, the, the, the way you were raised might explain why you are the way you are. It might explain why you've done some of the things you've done and things like that, but it never excuses those things. It, it helps you to understand why you are the way you are, but it never says it's okay for you to be the way you are. At some point, you have to change the way you are. You have to take responsibility for your own actions. You have to own up. And by the way, by the time you do that, it's too late. You can't undo the things you've done. You can't undo the damage you've done. But Jesus Christ can forgive you for those things. And what you do is you see, oh, no, I am a lost sinner. I do need salvation, so I do need Jesus. And that's the whole point of this, all this stuff on sin. It's not so that we walk around feeling miserable about ourselves and how hopeless our situation is. It's so that we know that if, we, if there is a hope for us, it is not in us. And that is, that is the... the, the the bad news, Romans is a big gospel tract. And the first thing you have to do before you try to save someone is let them see that they need to be saved. And, and he is just cementing that truth with this here.
My, my point in all this, well-intended actions and words of nice people are just as wrong and do at least as much damage as the bad actions of bad people. And maybe more so because they sound so good. And so when he says their throat is an open grave and with their tongues they keep on deceiving, even the nice people, even the good, well-meaning people are wrong. What is an open grave? It's an invitation to death. At least that's what I think it is. An open grave is an invitation to death. Their throats are open graves. They're inviting you to die. They're inviting you to a death with no hope. God wants to give us life. Jesus wants to give us life. And, and, and they, they, because they mean well and because they say it nicely doesn't change anything. And the result can be deadly. And so some of these things sound very extreme, but you know what? They apply really well. Uh, sin is dangerous, and people who do not have Jesus Christ, even when they're trying to do well, will end up doing bad. It doesn't teach we're all as bad as we possibly could be. I mean, is there anybody here who says, well, yeah, but I could be worse. I mean, I should say it that way. It's like, oh, yeah, let me prove it. You know what? I could tell worse jokes. <laughs> you say, Steve, your jokes are pretty bad. Yeah, but I, I could be worse. <laughs> I could prove it, but I try not to, right? Uh, we're not as bad as we could be, but we're all bad enough. We're not as sinful as we could be. We could be more sinful, but we don't have to be. We're sinful enough. And so that deals with some of them. You know, the other one that stumps me, and I have to go back and look at, is when it says, there is none that seeks after God, right? Verse 11, the second half of that, there's none who understands. The first half, second half, there is none who seeks for God or after God. And seeking God is a fairly common occurrence, it may be part of your testimony. You've looked at your life. You look at how you came to Christ. You go, well, I was, I, I, I was seeking for him. I was, I was looking for him or I was looking for truth or something like that. And you have this, but it says none of thought for God, but I know I did. So how do you reconcile that? And I'm going to give you two options that I think are consistent with Scripture and your experience. One of these two will be correct. First is you were not seeking God at all. You were avoiding him. Because you had been presented with God, and you heard it, and you kept on seeking. You know, if you're, if you're going shopping, uh, although I know some, some of you just love to shop, right? I, and I, have to, I will admit to you, I do not understand that. It's, it's, you know, for me, you win when you get out of the store quickly, right? That's, that's how you win. For you, the win is getting the exact perfect thing at the exact right price if it takes you a week, Right? And, and, and I'm going, a oh, week? <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't shop that long to get my car, I think. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, uh, but when you find what you want, uh, my, my, thing, my, my approach is you find what you want, buy it. Why keep shopping? You already found what you wanted. Go ahead and buy it. Why keep going? If you found God, if you found the true God, but you keep shopping, you're saying, well, he's not good enough. I'm hoping there might be a better option out there. I can always come back if I find, don't find anything better, but I'm going to keep looking and go around and see what I can have. And it's not that you're seeking God, it's that you're seeking an alternative to God. You're seeking an option to God. And, and, and the reason you haven't found him is because you don't want him. And, and it's easy to see. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you don't want the one true God. He's holy. He's good. He's righteous. He's just. 
I want a God who lets me get away with stuff. I want one who's not quite so omniscient, you know? Maybe I can fool him with a couple of these things that I've done. That's, that's a, yeah, it's not really the kind of God I want because who wants a God who you can trick? Who wants a God that's that small? Our real God is not that small. You can't trick him, but he's that big and he's that powerful and he's that good and he's scary. If you're going to be honest about it, you look at what he's like and you look at what you're like, he's scary, right? So, so you keep looking. And so I think a lot of people who say they're seeking are actually not seeking at all. He was in plain sight, he was obvious, and you walked past him looking for something else, and somehow he brought you back. But here's the other option, and at some point or another, this would be true for the same people. The Holy Spirit was already working in your heart. The Holy Spirit, because you you, you may have been seeking for something, but the Holy Spirit was seeking for you. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. What's that mean, he came to seek and to save? It means he was seeking. Right? Bible says no one seeks after God, but Jesus says he was seeking, God is seeking after us. And so he comes in and he stirs our heart. And once he stirs our heart, then we start looking for him. That makes sense. That works with the Bible and it fulfills your idea of I was seeking. He had stirred something in your heart to make you want him. He did the action first and, and you responded to that. And that works really well so that you, were, you could say I was seeking after God. But it starts with no one seeks after God, it would say, have to say, on their own. But as God seeks after you, he stirs your heart. And I know some of you have testimonies where you were seeking after God, and of course you've heard mine where I was not. <laughs> you know, I was seeking to avoid all these crazy Christians and, and, and their testimonies and all that stuff that bugged me so much. Uh, I was not seeking after God, so I, I'm, I'm really safe with that one. <laughs> I, was, I was part of that nobody that seeks after God. You are part of that somebody who goes, I, don't, I, have, I have to figure this one out. The conclusion, though, is that everybody is under sin. We go right back up to verse 9 where we started this whole thing. What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And this whole passage is about everybody. Jews and Greeks, everybody all together. We're all under sin. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you are churched or have never been to church. All are under sin. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then we have a couple more verses before we have our change of direction. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. First, we see what the law says when it speaks. Right? Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What does the law say when it speaks? When it speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. And understand that it's not good enough to have the law. Uh, you better pay attention to what it says. You know, we had a Bible in my house growing up. I can, I can picture exactly where it was, right? You, you, came in, we, uh, you came in the door here, and there was a big fireplace, awesome fireplace. I did not appreciate this fireplace as a kid. had this beautiful rock with blue and green in it, and, and blue, blue and yeah, pink kind of in it, and just beautiful white rock and, and big blocks, and, and then it had these bookshelves on the sides. Both sides of it. The mantle went out all the way across the whole room. Big house. It ran all the way across the whole room. And bookshelves on both sides. And on this side, second shelf down, right there at the end. That's where the Bible was. 
You knew it was always there because it never got moved. <laughs> it never got touched except maybe to dust it off every so often. I remember my sister, Teresa, took it down and she read, I think, I'm not sure how much she read. She read a little bit into Genesis and then she quit. So I was inspired and I tried the same. I got as far as Genesis 5 with the genealogy and I quit. <laughs> okay, I tried. Not, not going back and doing that to myself anymore. But otherwise, that Bible was there. That's where it was. It sat there. Of what possible benefit was that in our house? That Bible was not a benefit to anybody. We had it. We could show you where it was. We could be proud. It was a big Bible, you know, picture Jesus on the front, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got a Bible. It's a big one. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> it was big. That's that much I can say. It was a Bible, but it was of no benefit to us. It, it, the Bible speaks, and we better listen to it. Without listening to it, it doesn't do us much good. If you listen when, you speak, when it speaks, it shuts every mouth so that the whole world may be accountable to God. It stops. What's it mean when it shuts every mouth? It stops your arguments. It stops you, your ability to protest, no, no, not me. I'm not that bad, but I meant to do good, but I tried to do good, but my heart was good, but my motives were good. And he shuts every mouth. The Bible shuts every mouth. Uh, it, it, the, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the bone and the marrow, the spirit and the soul and the spirit. Uh, it's like he knows, he knows the motivations of your heart. And, you, you know, it's hard for me to know the motivations of my heart. Sometimes I wonder, do you ever, ever wonder, why did I do that? <laughs> right? But he knows. And, and, and he knows he, he sh it shuts our mouth. The word of God shuts your mouth. A couple of weeks ago, I told the story of the woman in, in uh, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. And, you know, just, just going back to that story, she's been caught in adultery. She's brought there before, the, before Jesus, who's sitting there, and he starts writing in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote in the dust. But one of the strong theories, uh, best theories, is that what he started writing was commandments. And as he wrote the commandments out on the, as, as if it was the commandments, because we don't know that, but if he, as, as he writes the commandments out on the dust, and all these Pharisees, all the accusers sitting around Jesus, accusing this woman, Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone. And as he writes the commandments, they see what he's writing. And one by one, they leave and go. Until no one is left there, Jesus says, where are your accusers? Where are, are they here? She says, no, they're not. What happened? If, if it was the word of God, it was the word of God that shut their mouths. They realized, I do not have a grounds to accuse this woman I, because I, too, am guilty. Uh, if, if that's what he wrote. and Because and I like, another theory I, write, I like is that he started writing names of women that they had cheated with. LAUGHTER because that one would make them leave really quick. <laughs> Reading God's word should never result in arrogance on our part. Reading God's word should result in humility on our part. It should lead to us saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not to us saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men.
You should either read God's word and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, or thank you, Lord, for forgiving me, a sinner, which is the end result of the first. But no one should think that somehow they're exempted by God's law just because they have it. So what do we read here? It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And there is nobody out there who that person is so good. We like to think of grandma, don't we? Grandma was not grandma. You don't know my grandma. If you knew my grandma, you'd understand. And and understand this. (laughs) Your grandma wore a miniskirt. (laughs) Your grandma wore hot pants. Your grandma went to Woodstock. (laughs) She wasn't always who she is now. (laughs) And your grandma may walk on water now. But once upon a time, your grandma was human. (laughs) Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know what the law does? The law does not justify us, right? What what, what does he say again? by the works of the law, and he's not talking about here about just the words of the law. Now he's talking about the works of it. You go out and you do the works of the law. No flesh will be justified in his sight. No matter how hard you try to be justified by works of the law, you will not make it. You know, the law does not justify You know what it does? The law does not justify you. The law reveals you. It makes plain your failure. It makes plain your inability to live as God wants you to live. It reveals you to yourself. And in revealing you, it condemns you and leaves you with no hope. We see how we're supposed to act. And we should try to act that way. I'm not saying we're, we're off the hook. Otherwise, we're back to Paul saying, Let, why don't we continue in sin? The grace may abound. And he says, by no means. The condemnation is just. Uh, But instead, we see how we fail. It has brought us not the knowledge of sin, not only the knowledge of sin, but the knowledge of our own sin. And Paul's own example, he gives us his own example a few chapters later in Romans chapter 7, uh, describing describing himself in verses 7 through 11. I'll read the whole, whole section, 7 through 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to be a result in death for me, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. I thought I did not know I was covetous. I did not know there was anything wrong with the way. This is Paul's sin. My sin was not covetousness. I had plenty of others. <laughs> but but Paul, you know, Paul is speaking of himself. He says, he says uh, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. And then I read what the law said. And as I read what the law said about coveting, I recognized how wrong I was. And the law that is good and perfect and was supposed to result in life resulted in death because it condemned me. 
He's giving his own testimony of how it worked. The law did not save him. The law killed him. Can you, by the works of the law, be justified? No. It can reveal how good you're supposed to be. And it reveals our failure. Please do not trust what you do. Because Jesus is here. And he can save you. What you do cannot save you. And that same law that condemns you and reveals you as sinful reveals him as sinless. Right? He did not sin. He, as a perfect, sinless Lamb of God, went to the cross and was sacrificed to pay for the sins of the world. He is here and he can save you. Your sin demands a price you cannot pay and carries a penalty you do not want to bear. And Jesus came and lived and died to pay that price and to spare you that penalty and to save you from all that and and trust in him for eternal salvation because we are all together condemned under sin. And I just want to say that we're finally there. I'm so happy to next week go to Uh, Oh, I'm in in Romans 7 now. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, (laughs) we get to move on away from the subject of how we're all condemned by sin to start looking at Jesus Christ who saves us from sin. And of course, we're not waiting there. You know what? I think it was Dwight L. Moody. It might have been one of the other great evangelists. was in Chicago. And he preached a sermon, and he told everybody, go home, think about it, decide if you need to choose Jesus as your Savior or not. And that night, the Great Chicago Fire happened. And I don't know how many people died in the Great Chicago Fire. I don't know how much destruction was gone. But he, he said, from, I will never again tell people to go home and think about it, because I don't know that they have tomorrow. You know what? You don't know. You probably have tomorrow. Probably. Yeah, probably you have tomorrow. You probably have time to think about it. But you don't know that. And you know what more? If God is working on you now, if if the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to you and telling you you need Jesus Christ and he's doing that now, you can quench that. And it's it's a good thing that he wants you. And your quenching it is a bad thing. God is good. He wants to save you. I mean, that's the whole amazing thing about all this. For some reason, he looks down at us little sinners that he should want to, like a bug, you know, do this. But instead, he wants to save us. He, he died on the cross to save us. Don't flee that. If, if he, God is working on you now, I ask you to respond now. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't hesitate. By the way, if I'm wrong, just in case you go, well, he's just, he, you know, he's using persuasive measures. He's trying to convince me, and I don't know. I want time to think about it. You know what? If I'm wrong, it actually doesn't hurt you. I, 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 and I know so many of you have heard it so many times. I prayed for salvation with an if. <laughs> if this is real, I want it. That was my, those were my words. If this is real, I want it. I, I put an if in there. It's like, who gets saved with an if? <laughs> I did. It doesn't cost you anything to ask Jesus to be your Savior and find out he's not real. Now, I'm going to tell you, he is, but it, you're, not, you're not actually risking anything. But he is real. 
and he will save you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, your word reveals us, and we are sinful. We certainly do not deserve you. We do not deserve heaven. We do not deserve eternal life. We are not qualified. But Lord God, you love us so much that you sent Jesus to be our Savior in spite of that. Lord, I ask for everyone here to trust you. If there's anyone by any chance who is not, that you would move in their hearts and move them now to take you as their Savior, to place their faith in you and you alone. And Father, that they would receive that gift of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name.